Is the mic? Yep, there we go. Good. While I'm leafing here, I uh, should draw attention to one other thing, and that is some of you will know that we are working on a bit of a building project here to make the most of this space while we are here, uh, and that will include a bathroom and a nursery kind of in the corner there where the stairs are chacked, uh, stacked. Um, Ray is able to draw stuff, so if you're interested in looking at what that's going to look like, there's some drawings at the back there, uh, and I should also bring it to your attention that there's going to be a financial cost to that, of course, and so you can put that on your radar. All right, we're continuing in Matthew 2. So if you want to turn there, we're going to pick up in Matthew 2, verse 13. Once you're there, then I'll ask you to stand for the reading. And these are the words of God. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had, been, he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in, a place for, in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. And that is the infallible word of God. You can be seated. So one of the major themes in Matthew that we're looking at is the continuation and the expansion of the Old Testament in the person and work of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And hopefully we're seeing that all through the Old Testament, God has made a series of covenants with various representatives or covenant heads that are expanding and progressing uh, in their promise to the ultimate and final covenant head. And you see these uh, people that God works with uh, representing a, a larger group than themselves. This starts with Adam. Uh, God makes his first covenant with Adam, and Adam fails in that. But then God goes ahead and he makes... A progressively expansive covenants with Noah, and then Abraham, and then Moses, and David, and finally our ultimate covenant head, Jesus Christ. And so one way you can think about this progressive building project through the Old Testament uh, is that these covenants are like scaffolding that is moving towards an ultimate project. And of course, Christ is the ultimate project. Uh, and these covenants and these people that are going to that point uh, are like scaffolding. That it, in one sense, it's part of the project, but it's building to something ultimate. It's building to the, the final goal, who is Jesus. Christ is the whole goal of, these project, of this project, and so these former covenants or promises 
are moving redemptive history progressively and continuously towards Jesus Christ. And as we've sometimes sang here, not this morning, but we've sang this song in the past, uh, that, that brings our attention to this. Christ is the true and better Adam. He is the true and better Noah, the true and better Abram, Moses, and David. And in a real sense, as we're going to see here this morning, Christ is also the true and better Israel. In a real sense, uh, we read about Christ fulfilling certain prophecies and certain offices, uh, and we're going to see the connection to the nation or to God's son, Israel, today. Matthew often uses the word fulfill, and think about what that word means, to fulfill. To fill something to its fullness, to its, uh, its full fruit, its full expression. Filling to its fullest. For Christ to fulfill something means that this thing reaches its highest and fullest expression in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Right? And so think of the offices that Jesus holds. He is prophet, priest, and king in a final, ultimate sense. He fulfills those offices perfectly. So we pick up in verse 13. It says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. So the wise men have departed back to the east, but their visit caused a stir and put a target on Jesus. The coming of the Messiah is now on everybody's map because it's being talked about in Jerusalem. That bottle has been opened and there's no getting the toothpaste back in it. Herod has become agitated. The religious authorities have been put on alert and the talk is getting around Jerusalem and Judea. God's already sent angel in the past to instruct Joseph. We've seen that a few times already. And now he has sent another one to to instruct him on what he needs to do right now how to protect Jesus Christ from impending danger. And these verses do take us back to the Old Testament era. And it's uh, Hosea is the one who gives this prophecy. And he's looking back in this era at Moses leading people out of the Exodus, out of Egypt I called my son. So this is a, an allusion from Christ back to, uh, to Moses, to the Exodus, to Israel coming out of Egypt. And you'll remember that for all of Moses' faith, all of his obedience, remember Moses wasn't allowed in the promised land? Does anyone remember why? You can read about it in Numbers chapter 20. God had told Moses to tell the rock to give its water to the people, but whether out of frustration or impatience with the rebellious people, Moses takes his staff and he strikes the rock. He doesn't follow instructions perfectly and he is not permitted into the promised land as a result. But why is this such a problem? God was still kind, and so refreshing water still came out of the rock, but Moses did not follow instructions. And in one sense, we can say that any time that the creation defies the creator, uh, the punishment that follows or the discipline that follows is just. It's not out of proportion for God to say, well, you you didn't follow instructions. Uh, You don't get to, to experience the joy of entering the promised land. This doesn't mean that Uh, Moses is unadopted by any stretch, but it does mean that there is a temporal blessing that he is cut off from for his disobedience. And I think this is significant uh, in terms of what Jesus does, the steps that he follows 
to go back to this image that Hosea has given us in which Matthew is quoting here. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4 and 5, when Paul is warning the church about idolatry, he gives us a key piece of information. He says, For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. That rock in the wilderness was Jesus Christ. Not literally, of course, but symbolically, that rock in the desert was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So the reasoning that Moses in that generation was excluded is because Moses struck Christ when it was not yet time. Right? It's not yet time. Yes, I'm going to give you water in the desert. But it's not yet time for the rock to be broken in half and for healing water to come out of its side. It's premature. You're, you're jumping the gun, Moses. Therefore, that generation uh, remained in the desert. Moses and the people cannot enter, and that is why his successor, Yeshua, Joshua, is going to have to fill that role. The next generation goes in. And so in Jesus, we have the greater Moses, the greater Yeshua, literally Yeshua, Joshua, to undo what Moses had done. And Christ is retracing these steps right down to Moses' very earliest days of infancy. Just as Pharaoh had demanded the death of all the little Jewish boys because he was paranoid about how the Hebrews were going to overcome his kingdom, now it's 1,300 years later, And Herod is demanding the death of all the little Jewish boys because he feels a threat to his kingdom. See how this is going? (laughs) Jesus is retracing these steps. He's going to be the obedient Israel. The reason that Christ goes back and redoes these steps, retraces these steps, and retells these stories again is to fulfill and to perfect and to terminate the ministries that these Old Testament saints started but did imperfectly. When we talk about something being terminated, don't think of it as being thrown in the garbage or or discarded or destroyed. Think rather, when we talk about Christ being the the termination point or the terminal end of something, think of like a terminal at an airport or a terminal on a battery. Okay, This is your last destination. This is what it's all leading to. It's not enough to just get to the Winnipeg airport. You have to get to the right terminal so you can board your plane. Okay, It's not enough to just have a bunch of cells with ions sitting in a box, the point is to get it to the terminal. This is the ending point. This is the fulfillment point. And so when we talk about Christ being the termination point of something, we're not saying it's all obliterated. We're saying he is the the final end. He is the point of all of this leading up to that terminal point. Joseph knew to trust the Lord. He's been instructed by angels in the past, and he is now again. And so he brings his family to Egypt, which is a long journey. We saw last week that the distance from Jerusalem to Bethlehem is only about six miles, but now they're going to go on a journey that's more like a hundred miles. So this is a significant one. And they stay there until the death of Herod, which we know is in the year 4 BC. And in in verse 15, Matthew is again writing in a manner which is going to show his Jewish audience that Christ is their hope and their salvation, as he quotes Hosea 11.1, to show that Jesus is the ultimate Son of God. And we've mentioned both here and also as we've gone through different things in Sunday school that prophecies often have multiple layers of depth. There's often kind of a telescoping fulfillment of uh, certain prophecies. So it's very often that there's a close-at-hand fulfillment that's going to happen within a few days or a few weeks or a few years, and then the ultimate and final point reaching uh, its fullest expression in Jesus Christ. 
So when Hosea is writing, there's one sense in which he's actually looking back at Moses and the Exodus and God's commitment to show his son, the nation of Israel, uh, that he is pleased to bring him out of Egypt. He's free to bring Israel out of bondage and out of slavery. But now the greater son, the ultimate son, has appeared after all these years and God is once again calling him out of the very same place. Out of Egypt I called my son. The son is retracing the steps of the previous son. And where Israel grumbled and was often unfaithful, Jesus submits to the will of Father, to the will of his father, and is perfectly faithful. Reading on in verse 16, it says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region, those who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And we saw last week, we looked at the, the journey of Herod's life and the, the paranoia that was setting in, and he was becoming quite paranoid. We know that he's killed at least one of his wives. He's killed two brothers-in-law. He's killed three of his own sons in order to preserve his spot. And now the brutality is going further out into Bethlehem. The fact that he's willing to now kill other people's sons uh, really shouldn't be that surprising based on his track record. And I think this is important to stop here for a little bit. Some skeptics have suggested that this is all just a fabrication because outside of the Bible, there's no record in history of Herod killing all these boys in Bethlehem. But I think we should think that through a little bit. Bethlehem's not a huge city. When I was a kid and I'd hear this story, I'd always picture like thousands of women wailing, right? Because there's this big city. It's like New York City and all these kids died. Bethlehem's a little town. And most estimates that I was able to read would say boys age two and under, there might have been about 10 to 30 of these children in that time. So 10 to 30, uh, statistically, especially knowing Herod's other brutality, wouldn't necessarily have caught the attention of other historians. So the fact that there's no extra biblical uh, reference to this in no way says that this isn't a historical event. It absolutely is. The Bible records it, and it's entirely consistent with what else we know about Herod. And it's maybe a little bit like one of our own more contemporary very evil men, Joseph Stalin, uh, in the Soviet Union. When he was committing his brutality, and he killed seemingly at least as many as Adolf Hitler did, Commenting on his brutality, he says this, a million deaths is a statistic. One death is a tragedy. Think of that. If you kill so many people, it becomes impersonal at a certain point. It's just a number, right? So and so many people died in in whatever year. It's not a big deal. But now zoom it into your own life. One person dies. That is a tragedy. That hits home. It's someone you know. It's someone you loved. It's someone uh, that you've got memories with. And so one death is a tragedy, So this doesn't have to be uh, a big city-wide event. It can happen in a small town, but it is a tragedy. Whether it's 10 boys or 30 boys, those are all boys who were nursed by their mothers. Their dads uh, enjoyed playing with them, throwing them up in the air. These are real people. And so think, try to get into the story and think of the cost of what it would have meant, even in a small town, that this brutality played itself out. Verse 17, it says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. 
And so there is the tragedy of those who lost their little babies. And this will have been intense. Matthew compares it to Rachel weeping for her children. And he's quoting Jeremiah, who's also looking back at Rachel weeping over her sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And so it gives a sense of despair and a sense of hopelessness and a sense of tremendous loss and emotional pain uh, when Rachel is being referenced here by Matthew and then also by Jeremiah, as he's quoting Jeremiah. If you read this part of Jeremiah, this prophecy then looks with anticipation to yet another return from exile. And Matthew takes Jeremiah's prophecy and applies it again to Jesus, the new Moses, the new Exodus, who once again comes to God's chosen ones to lead a new Exodus out of their current slavery. Both instances involve mothers who have lost their babies unjustly and had them ripped out of their arms. And the reference here to Rachel is especially meaningful since she is most likely, think of this, people didn't move around a whole lot. Rachel is most likely the great-grandmother to many of these little boys that were living at this time. They're her descendants, many years removed, of course. But, but undoubtedly, many of these little boys who died are genetic descendants of Rachel. And if you go back and read in your Old Testament, you read Genesis 35, 16 through 19, it also becomes clear, remember Rachel died in childbirth while she's giving birth to Benjamin, And then she's laid to rest in a tomb in which town? Bethlehem. Rachel's laid to rest in Bethlehem. Rachel is there, in one sense, weeping for these children. Jesus is retracing the steps. Verse 19, it says, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So when Herod dies, his province is divided into three parts. And his one son, Herod Philip, takes uh, the furthest away provinces. Herod Antipas takes Galilee and Persia to the, uh, Perea to the north. And Archelaus takes Judea to the south. And Joseph is told by the angel that he can return to Egypt now that Herod is dead. But Judea, where Jerusalem and Bethlehem are located, uh, are ruled by Archelaus. And this man had a reputation every bit as bad as his father's. In fact, he was so brutal... He was such a wicked man uh, that Caesar had him deported to Gaul because they were afraid that uh, an uprising and a revolution was going to happen because the Jews hated Archelaus so much. Uh, So he actually, and Gaul is present-day France. So think of that. You get pulled out of Jerusalem and you've got to go up to France as your exile. So Archelaus has a reputation as a cruel man. Returning to the region of Israel, but avoiding this particular province of Judea, meant that Jesus' family settled further north in Galilee, in the city of Nazareth. And in one last comment here in this passage on fulfilled prophecy, Matthew says that the location of Nazareth fulfills the prophetic expectation that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. And this prophecy is a little more difficult to pinpoint because there's not a verse anywhere in the Old Testament that says it exactly like this. 
There's not one verse that says uh, exactly what Matthew's quoting here. What he is most likely doing is giving a summary of several prophecies all in one, and he is finding that fulfillment in Jesus and his family settling in Nazareth. People from Nazareth were despised, and the fact that Christ would be despised is uh, entirely consistent with the prophecies we read about in Psalm 22.6, and in Isaiah 49.7, and in 53.3. So there is this uh, expectation that the Messiah is going to be despised and rejected like a Nazarene. But then there's also a probable wordplay from Isaiah 11.1, uh, which says that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And this is a comment on Jesus' genealogy. Jesse is the father of King David, and so in this sense, Jesus is a branch from this root. Uh, and the Hebrew word for branch is netzer, which is a play on, uh, on the word Nazareth. Okay? So probably what this is, is a summary of saying Jesus is despised and rejected, and he is a branch from the root of David, from the root of Jesse. And he genealogically, of course, was. And to look at what we've just looked at so far in these first two chapters, we are at the beginning of young Jesus' life, and Matthew is already showing us and cluing us into how significant just the physical uh, genealogy and the physical journey of Jesus is already to the story of redemption. Just this pattern of migration in the first two years of his life is already deeply significant in Jesus being the greater son the ultimate Israel uh, from whom uh, God is calling out of Egypt. Everything fits. The church father Augustine once comments on the relationship between the Old and the New Testament when he says that the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. And that's part of the reason we wanted to go through the Gospel of Matthew is to show that your Bible is one Bible. It's so common today, so common today, and you have very popular preachers talking about unhitching your Bible from the Old Testament. Okay? And, and people use the Old Testament to, uh, to make a theological point, and it's almost like you can hear everyone in the room saying, yeah, but that's the Old Testament. Give me something relevant. Right? Just the New Testament divorced from the Old Testament makes no sense. Think so far, just what Matthew, how he's treated the first two years of Jesus' life. Is the Old Testament deeply relevant to Jesus? It absolutely is. These Old Testament stories are not, and I will not tire of saying this because it's so common to treat them like they're Aesop's fables for Christians. They are not. They are not. They're stories about Jesus before Jesus shows up. That's what they're about. Read them like that. Okay? The story about Moses and the Exodus is the story about you being led out of sin and slavery through Jesus Christ, the greater Moses. Okay? This doesn't mean these aren't historical events. They absolutely are. But we have to see their spot in the whole theme of redemption. Commenting later, at Princeton Seminary, very sound and evangelical conservative scholar, B.B. Warfield, has a great picture of the Old and the New Testament and how this finds fulfillment in Christ. And he, he says, think of the Old Testament like a library or a study that's fully stocked and everything is there but the blinds are kind of drawn partway closed. And so it's a little bit dark, and it's a little bit shadowy. And the coming of Christ is like turning on the lights. It's like opening up the blinds. The same stuff is still in the room. It's the same room. Okay, It's the same stuff. But now we can see it, because someone's put on the lights. Someone's opened up the blinds, and now with all the stuff 
that was put back there now makes sense. We can see it where it belongs. So how do we apply this? Well, one is to see the unity of scriptures. Don't unhitch your Old Testament. The Old Testament is the word of God right now, today. Moses' words live. The Old Testament is the word of God, presently. Also see unity in the story. Despite the difference of culture, language, the political climate, the Old and the New Testament are, are together one unified, coherent story of God and his purposes for his creation. And seeing how the apostles, like Matthew, handle the Old Testament should give us the eyes to see Christ everywhere. Now when you do this, now read your Old Testament and read it with Christ on every page. Where is Christ in this story? That's the way to read your Old Testament. Where is Christ in the story? And we want to be people, we're called Christians because we've taken the name of Christ. We need to see Christ for who he is. We're not teaching bland moralism, we're preaching Christ. Charles Spurgeon, the great British Baptist preacher said this, and let's say amen to this with Spurgeon. The motto of all true servants of God must be, we preach Christ and him crucified. A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No sermon in your Christ, or no Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again. Never preach again if there's not Christ. Wait till you've got something worth preaching, then preach it. And I say amen to Charles Spurgeon. God is the author of this story. And because he is God, he never learns anything. He never looks down. He never watches passively. Meaning comes because God assigns it before the thing happens. That's why it has a meaning. <clears throat> all facts, all events in the Old Testament and in your life, are created facts and events. They come into reality with meaning already attached to them. And this is another way of saying that God is always moving the pieces into place as he moves things forward. He's not commenting as an onlooker. He is a storyteller pointing you to Jesus Christ. Get this into your heart. Get it into your blood. See Jesus everywhere. Think of how carefully the plan of redemption was crafted and executed, and God moving all the smallest story details into place, even where Rachel is laid to rest. It's all part of this big story. And this allows the gospel to be personal. This isn't just a cold, impersonal plan. It's for you, and for you, and for you. This is personal, okay? You're also a detail in this story. This isn't just a system. This is one-by-one one salvation for you. Put your name in the story. If you're in Christ, this is for you. God has personally included you as one of the details as he meticulously weaves every part of the story together. And so if you are united to Christ through faith, each one of these details has been prepared for you. It's not just some bus trip that God planned and now he's just waiting to see who's going to get on the bus and then he'll make sure the bus gets there. God's committed to getting you on the bus and then he's committed to getting the bus home. So I want you to see this as personal when you see Christ in your Old Testament. All these details are being moved to get you to heaven, to get you to know the sweetness of having your sins forgiven and to enjoying eternity with Christ forever. 
we're going to take communion this morning. And so to segue that, let's remember how God has spared no detail, even to get wine and bread into your hands, as symbols to remind you of all the other details and the symbols that have gone before. Let's think about that. Preaching, reading scripture involves hearing, it involves uh, that sense. Communion, which we're about to move into now, involves touch and taste and smell. Okay? God is willing to, to put all these symbols, all these words, all these stories in so we, guard, we get a full picture of who Jesus is, who the Christ is. And so let's consider all the details that went into even giving bread and wine the symbolic significance that they have. And most of all, let's be thankful for our Savior who has retraced all the steps of the story to get us all the way home. Let's pray. Father God, you are kind. You are all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful. Lord, you have been moving this story bit by bit in your perfect timing, in details that we have not even begun to scratch the surface of. Yet, and even when you show us little bits and pieces here, how you have moved together one big grand story of redemption lord it makes our hair stand on end to know that you are that wise you care that much for each one of your children you spare no expense you spare no detail lord and i pray especially now as we prepare our hearts for communion to be reminded in a different way of your love and your commitment to getting us home lord i pray through your spirit that you would impress on each one's heart You are our master, you are the obedient son, and you have done this all on our behalf. Lord, prepare our hearts for today and for the week ahead of us, that we would live for your glory, that we would see you and your purposes in all the details of all our own personal stories, and most of all in the scriptures. Thank you for your kindness to us, and we commit this all into your hands. And think of this word, fulfill. Something is filled to its fullness. It comes to its maximum and complete form. Like an acorn to an evergreen or a bulb to a tulip, so types, shadows, and prophecies find their fullest, final, and ultimate meaning in Christ Jesus. God started telling the story of Jesus thousands of years before his birth. Christ is in every page of the Old Testament, announcing his coming in the shadows. He is there as Moses escapes the slaughter of a brutal ruler. He is there as the rock that gives Israel spiritual water. He is there in the exodus from Egypt back to the promised land. And he is there when Rachel is weeping for her children. He is there despised and rejected by many. And he is there growing out of Jesse's stump. When he finally makes his appearance as a literal, physical man in history and retraces every one of these steps in order to redeem every last part of the story, we can do no other than stop our mouths and marvel at the attention to detail. Think of the cost it took to get me, to get you, into this unshakable kingdom. And as we've just taken communion, let us also remember how the symbols of Moses and the Passover are fulfilled at Christ's Last Supper. So we can hold bread and wine in our hands. Reminders that Christ gave his body and blood for the one holding these elements. And I'll leave you with the benediction from Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, 
from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And go in peace.